want to say what's up to everyone who is in the audience. Quick little show for the Bitcoin magazine. We have the censorship resistant issue that is just hitting shelves right now. Uh, it's pretty freaking epic if I can say so myself. I personally am hoarding issues of this edition. We have a collector's version of our annual subscription where you get two issues of the Bitcoin magazine, one for collecting, one for reading. So check that out. We have a link at the top where you can go check out all of our magazines, including the originals from back in 2012 and, uh, or, sorry, 2013. That's my, and yeah, Bitcoin Amsterdam, Boris is in a Dutch Bitcoiner. So excited to, uh, to chat with him about everything that's happening in Amsterdam and in the Netherlands, but Bitcoin Amsterdam is definitely happening. And if you haven't noticed, Bitcoin is just really taking a Europe by storm. There's tons and tons of events. And these are like Bitcoin only events, not just crypto events. It's awesome to see that. And yeah, of course, Bitcoin Amsterdam, very hyped for it. October 12th to the 14th. You can get tickets directly on Bitcoin Magazine's Twitter, the conference Twitter. You can also go to b.tc forward slash conference, check out Bitcoin Amsterdam, Bitcoin 23. Check out all of the stuff that we've got going on. Boris, you having any issues? Talking directly to you just because I see you in the audience, but you're not accepting my speaker requests. Q, have you been paying attention to the Dutch truckers, and, or sorry, the Dutch farmers and the farmers around Europe, but in general, I mean, that's going on there. Oh, what's up, Boris? Welcome. To answer your question, yes, it's been a an incredible showing of people who are clearly affected by policies that are made by people who are very out of touch with reality. And I'm really excited to hear from the people that are actually out there, what's going on. So Boris, welcome to the stage and thank you for joining us. You are muted, sir. <laughs> is this your first time using spaces? Yeah, it is. And I've got this privacy phone and all my rights were turned off. So I was looking how to turn it off. I succeeded. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you for destroying your privacy for this Twitter <laughs> conversation. <laughs> yeah, I'm not used to this. Awesome. So, yeah, um, about, about, go for it. Yeah, about, about your question. I think two and, two and a half weeks ago, we have, we've seen a start of something that's being called the farmer uprising here in Dutch. People are really starting to realize what is going on. And it's interesting that Holland, it's a small country. There's 18 million people living here. It will take you about two and a half hours to drive through the country either way. It's small. We don't have a lot of farmers compared to the amount of the citizens, but the farmers we do have tend to be very much wary of government control. And it's been like this for decades. And the farmers that I know, I don't live in Amsterdam myself. I live in an area with a lot of farmers. I've been meeting a lot of them. I think that started a few years ago, shaking their hands, buying meat and dairy directly from them. And that's something that I recommend people should do. And when I talk to these people, they have been terrorized by a government regulation. Every year they are they are forced to make new investments in greener technologies or they are forced to to shrink the the amount of livestock they have you, you have to imagine that I have, a, I have a farmer friend of mine and we have a horse on his land and he got a letter that they flew over his property with a small airplane took a picture saw a horse on his land 
and that specific part of the land was not designated for livestock. And he got a, like a 1200 euro fine. And that sort of stuff has been going on for decades. So farmers are literally very much aware of what the government can do. And that's why I think we've seen this, this line in the sand being drawn by the farmers first here. Like the truckers in Canada, the farmers did it in, in Holland. Boris, do you mind maybe sharing a little bit about the history of how the Netherlands got to a point where they had so many restrictions over livestock farming? Yeah, this has been, this has started a long time ago and it's been, the situation is getting worse very gradually. To give you an example, in, in the 50s, in the 1950s, in the Netherlands, you would have between 400 and 500 types of farmers in farming businesses in the Netherlands. Right now, we only have 53,000. And this didn't happen overnight. It's, it started very slowly. And you have to understand, we've been having this talk about the difference between the U.S. perspective and the European perspective when it comes to all these world economic forum policies, this, I don't know, this big centralization that we're experiencing. And I think that people who, who don't know the European situation have to realize that it's a lot worse here. And it's worse in the sense that the EU, when it started to take over, the, e the EU parliaments are elected, but the EU government, the bureaucratic layer, is not elected. It's not a democratic process. And when that started to take form, uh, what you saw in the Netherlands as well was that democratic rights that we had. So we have this law that people were allowed, if you had a certain amount of signatures, you could ask for a referendum. And this referendum needed to be passed into law. Then they changed it. So the referendum didn't uh, the outcome of the referendum didn't need to be passed into law, but it was just an advisory to the government. Now they canceled the whole referendum thing, so people cannot really talk to the politicians anymore. And this has been going on for a long time, at least 20 years. And what you saw from Europe, this country has been, it's been a liberal country for a long time. And liberal in the sense that there's pretty good welfare here. People also pay a lot of taxes. And this is something that's, uh, that's becoming increasingly expensive. And the, what you from Europe, so you see local government giving away power to these European institutions. And these European institutions come up with the strangest laws. So they came up with Sadir that we have to protect nature. Well, this is probably the same as everywhere. And it sounds great that people read about it in the paper and go, yeah, let's protect nature. Sounds good. And then they have this, they, they build these models. And now, now that we have Corona, everybody is very much aware of the dangers, like government based on models. So they have this model where, and they called it Nature 2000. And what the idea was that these, this model would allow local governments to pass out, pass out laws about how the land should be managed. And they have this Nature 2000 thing in the Netherlands. You have it in France as well. There's other countries have the same problems, but in the Netherlands specifically, they figured out that a certain vegetation needs to be protected. And this happens to be the vegetation type of grass and some weed and something else. Uh, and it only grows in, in, in not very fertile grounds. So typically grounds that are not uh, like soil that is not being farmed because the soil usually gets get some nitrogen or some artificial or what do you call that manure that put on the fertilizer sorry that's the word I'm looking for. because they need to protect these or reach these nature 2000 goals there's only one option and that's just like getting rid of the farmers 
And they came up with this, this idea like, okay, we have to abide to this nature 2000 target. That means that we have, that we need a 30% reduction in total nitrogen being produced by farmer and nitrogen is, it's a, it, it's a strange thing. It's mostly about fertilizer, but it's also about waste or it can be about gases being produced by the animals. It's very, it's very unclear what is meant exactly. They just call it nitrogen. And it's mostly about fertilizer. They are threatening to appropriate the farmers. And that was the drop. And this is, I, I'm not sure, but I think in most countries, having your property confiscated by the government is something that's hard to imagine. And here in the Netherlands, that is something that's actually happened. If you live in a certain area and the city government plans to uh, redevelop the area, you have no option but sell your house to the government. Or you can imagine that you won't get the best price and nobody else wants to buy it because the, because nobody wants to have a legal battle with the government, which you're going to lose anyway. So once the city government decides that you, that you have to sell your house to the city, you have no option but to do that. And you get a really bad offer. So this forced, this confiscation, in a sense, in a way of property was already going on. Nobody really complained about it. And it was rare, but it did happen. And now they're outright saying, the government's outright saying, we're going to take this land from these farmers. We're going to forcibly relocate these farmers. And we're going to build houses on these lands. And that's really weird because the whole idea was, okay, you want to protect nature. So you're going to kick out the farmers and build some areas where there's going to be cheap housing. How is that good for nature? That's really weird. And this is, uh, this has become very visible, lots of discussion about it. And I think the government went too far. And yeah, now we have this, half the country is on fire because of this, which is interesting. Right? So, so a lot of oh, Boris. I guess my question is, obviously, this situation is not unique specifically to the Netherlands. It's something that's happening across Europe, and it's a lot of what you can call it tinfoil hat conspiracy theorists that have, I think, for a lot of them been right around this kind of globalist agenda. They're saying it's coming to other Western nations as well. We've seen that with the truckers, Bitcoin became a huge theme there. We've seen in Eastern Europe and uh, former Soviet Union that Bitcoin became like a necessary tool. We haven't really seen that Bitcoin like undercurrent or theme necessarily around this farmer protest. Is Bitcoin relevant for them? Do you think that like we might see a, a Justin Trudeau style stick terrorist seizing of funds type of action from the Dutch government? Is that something that like people are thinking about? The only thing that I've noticed was that there was a police commission. He labeled the protests as something that could be interpreted as domestic terrorism. And when a police commissioner says something like that, that they're looking for this angle, the thing is, I think, and I'm, it's very hard because we're in the middle of it. So it's hard to tell what the outcome is going to be, but. I think the government knows they went too far and it doesn't like this really extreme crackdowns that we saw, for instance, that we saw in, in, in the Corona period where there were mass demonstrations and uh, police, at least these are the conspiracy theorists, they flew in cops from Poland and Hungary into the Netherlands. They were, and they came there just to fight and they did a lot of harm. I think that was new and people expected something like that might happen with the farmer uh, protest and it didn't there were no riots in that sense it's just what is that that these farmers they have this 
big rigs, like massive equipment that they used to push away police vehicles, break through barricades, shut down the highways. And this, I think, this hasn't led to the, uh, to the same response that we saw in Canada, where they were actually cracking down on bank accounts, which was new. And I'm not sure about how you see that, but I think from a European perspective, I don't think that was a big success. We saw at the beginning of the bank run in Canada when that happened. And here, even in the mainstream media, that was big news. Canada, how can you be a free country if you confiscate bank accounts? And I, once that happens, Bitcoin is in the picture immediately. But it hasn't happened yet here. And it, it is interesting. Farmers aren't stupid. They're very, they have to just, yeah, they're very smart when it comes to practical solutions. And I've been, I've been buying, I've been going to a farm to buy meat. And it was a funny story. I, I entered this, his property and it was a long drive to his house, to the actual farm. And I got out, I walked into the house and it was a, like a really old fashioned, 50 style kitchen. And this typical farmer is there with his overalls, blue overall and his, his wooden shoes, which is typical for Dutch farm, yellow wooden shoes. And usually those conversations are interesting because I'm, I'm really from the city. So it takes a while for me to learn how to hang with the farmers. And this, we were talking about, uh, I was paying cash for the meat and he was talking about how hard it was to get changed these days. And then all of a sudden he starts talking about Bitcoin and I do a Bitcoin podcast in other words. and he was listening to this podcast and it was some, I get a lot of response to this podcast, but this guy was the most unlikely listener to this podcast, but he was listening to it. So I asked him, why are you interested in Bitcoin? And it, there was just one answer and just because it's too to stay out of the hands of the government. And this is interesting. And I think this is, we've seen all these narratives over the past eight years and Bitcoin has to be a store of value or it is a speculative asset or a bubble or whatever. We saw all these narratives, these labels being applied to Bitcoin. But what I haven't seen yet is that the unconfiscatable part of it was actually useful to people. And we're starting to see that now. And the farmers here realize that. And not all of them, is, it's, it's large in the Netherlands, but not that large. It's not mainstream yet. And these, yeah, I was surprised by the farmers that I've talked to that most of them have heard about it, are aware of it, are very much aware of the, the problems that they're facing. Another thing that they're facing, for instance, in the Netherlands, you have a, you have a wealth tax. So basically every year on January 1st, you have to declare what you own. And if there's everything above a certain 80,000 euros, everything above that amount, you pay a certain amount of tax. Some things are exempt, your own house, for instance, or the land that you have. But if you have land and it, you don't have it for business, but you have it as personal property and you don't use it to produce anything, that land might be, might be taxable. So farmers are really wary of that because most of them don't have a lot of cash flow, but they are sitting on these huge plots of land, which are worth millions. So most farmers on paper are millionaires. And in reality, they are, they have trouble paying the rent every month or their mortgage every month. So that's, this is a very interesting situation. So the farmers are, are financially savvy and savvy enough to understand the solution that Bitcoin brings. And it's interesting because it's a different solution then why most people discovered Bitcoin. And to be honest, most of them are just in it for speculation. And these farmers have a very different approach. That's interesting.
That is really interesting. So it, they may not see what happens in Canada, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the farmers don't have an immediate use case for Bitcoin, given their kind of land situation. Although a wealth tax is a wealth tax. And as an American, we're very scared of that being down the pipe for us, but it already seems like it exists uh, in the Netherlands. And to be honest, 80,000 euros is not that much value these days, especially given the euro's performance against the dollar. It's not looking very good. So pretty totalitarian in my opinion. And it sounds like all Dutch people need Bitcoin. Obviously, Bitcoin Amsterdam is coming. And I've been pretty surprised about the ticket, the ticket sale and the flow that's happening there. Boris, I think we skipped over introductions a little bit. Why don't you say, you tell a little bit about who you are, your podcast, your meetup, what you're doing with Bitcoin, and, and maybe we can even talk about the Dutch Bitcoin community. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've been a longtime Bitcoiner. I started my career as a video game journalist. Uh, I'm when I was playing video games when I was a kid, I, I was fascinated by the idea of making money playing video games. And this wasn't possible because there was no money uh, in video games. And I always was fascinated by every attempt to build something like this. And back in the days, there was a, was a video game called uh, EVE Online. And they had an in-game series and it was linked to the US dollar. They, they, Practically three weeks later, once I started that, they had a huge scam and all of the money was stolen. And this, for, this really, this is way before Bitcoin existed. And when Bitcoin came around, I, I realized like this is, this, this is an answer to that problem that I saw in Evil Line. This is this digital scarcity that's, that, that isn't being owned by anyone could solve that problem of someone running away from funds. That was very interesting. So I started following Bitcoin. I did it. I did get into it until a little bit later. Uh, then I started doing podcasts for the Dutch version of the Financial Times. They have a, uh, it's called Business Ins Radio. I did a podcast for them. Uh, then I started doing uh, my own podcast together with uh, your, your colleague as well. And, and at a certain moment, we saw that the podcast was preaching to the choir. And I realized that people in the Netherlands were all in it for speculation. And it, I don't know, it irritated me. And I was like, okay, I need to talk about freedom and do a podcast about freedom to teach people what freedom is. Because it's, you have to realize that the Dutch don't know a lot about libertarianism. And that's weird because it was practically invented in the Netherlands in the golden age, but it's been lost. And now the Dutch have to learn about libertarianism again. And so I started doing that podcast. I have a media company and yeah, like all the other Bitcoins in the Netherlands were psyched for Amsterdam. There aren't that many conferences here in Amsterdam about Bitcoin. I've been to one, Breaking Bitcoin was here, I think two, three years ago. Uh, that was very good, but this is going to be awesome. Looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. I know Q is really looking forward to it. Amsterdam is one of those cities that young Americans and young foreigners just absolutely love. They either been there and love it, or they have been dreaming of and scheming of how to get there. It's definitely a very romanticized. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that Bitcoin community is? I know that one of the Amsterdam Bitcoin meetup is one of the biggest. I know some people here in Nashville and Austin that run some pretty big meetups, and even they were blown away by what's happening in Amsterdam. Can you talk about the Bitcoin community in Amsterdam and the Netherlands? 
Yeah, that's a Bitcoin meetup. I do that as well. That's uh, that came that came from from our podcast. Uh, me, Adam, and Jan. We do the Bitcoin meetup in Amsterdam, and it's been growing exponentially. We have an awesome venue. It's old school arcade, video game arcade in, in, in the city, and that's uh, once once you step inside, it feels like you're back in the eighties. And this uh, this venue just really went well with the with the community. I loved it. Uh, we've been doing that every few months, and the I have the idea that the community has been growing. I don't think it's much different from other places, except that the Dutch have been generally very tech-savvy. Also, there are a couple of very early Bitcoiners that came from Holland. I think David Jones, eCash company, was based in Amsterdam as well. There were like, like 20 further people working there. Some of them started Bitcoin companies as soon as Eagle died and Bitcoin came along. Actually, I think Amsterdam has been, Amsterdam also has, is one of these, like in the nineties, when the internet started developing, this is one of the places where the broadband internet cable came to shore from the U.S. Most of the traffic that came from the U.S. or went from Europe to the U.S., it came from this Amsterdam app called the Amsterdam Internet Exchange. So a lot of internet companies, early internet companies, needed to be close to this app. And this, this is actually the reason why David chose Amsterdam. And this, I think there's a lot of tech-savvy people here, and the community is very tight. Most people uh, meet each other at, at meetups. Uh, there's a lot of local meetups as well throughout the country. There's a couple of podcasts that are very, for a small country, I think we have a, we have a very lively Bitcoin scene. What is your take on Bitcoin in Europe right now? Obviously, we're seeing exchanges in the Netherlands implementing further KYC on withdrawals and things like that, that we haven't seen in other places being rolled out yet. We've generally seen Europe hot or cold on proof of work. It's not a super competitive place for proof of work, but we do see a lot of great Bitcoin companies and great Bitcoiners and things like that coming out of Europe. Like, What's your take on what's happening in Europe with Bitcoin? Maybe even talk about the regulatory landscape a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting in the sense that Holland has always been a pilot country. We have most people understand English, speak it a little bit, and they, for some reason, lots of stuff gets tried out in the Netherlands. So once the KYC regulation was introduced by the FATF, Netherlands was one of the first countries to have rolled it out. And it's, it was amazing how fast it went. And the Dutch Central Bank was doing that. They were efficient at it. I think they have a lot of knowledge about Bitcoin. And even though the rules they implement seem stupid, I don't think the people who work there are stupid. They are rolling out the agenda. And one of the interesting things that I've noticed, I don't know if you saw the news article, it was a couple of weeks ago, the Bank of International Settlement in Switzerland said they would allow regular banks to hold up to 1% of their assets in crypto, in Bitcoin. And this people, most Bitcoiners were like, yeah, that's a great idea. Now banks can do custody. And I think what's actually been going on, people don't really see it yet, but what they're doing is they're gonna, they're creating like a gray, a gray place, or what do people call it, a gray space for Bitcoin. The white space is, or the legal space, the custody is only going to be uh, done by companies that are very much regulated, banks as well. Uh, they might even pay interest over Bitcoin if you store it there, but you will never ever get it out again. You might be able to send Bitcoin to another custodial 
party, which operates in the name of the user, but you will never ever do self-custody once your Bitcoin are inside the legal system. And the banks are going to play a role in it. And I think they're actually rolling this out. They're building this right now. And this is, uh, yeah, this is very much problematic because even if there's a lot of people who have Bitcoin or invest in Bitcoin, they don't know much about self-custody yet. And this is, um, yeah, this is, uh, I think, one of the major problems for Bitcoin, that once the regular t- regulatory trap closes, there's going to be a lot of Bitcoin stuck into this sort of legal space, and they will never, the dust quads will never exit that space again. And that's, uh, I think that they're building that right now. Uh, I think yesterday there was a big meeting in, in Brussels where all EU countries talked about central bank digital currency. Uh, it's funny because they did a, a consultation, they call it, people from all over Europe could, could send in letters and give their opinion about what was going on. They received about, I think, a small 15,000 replies and letters, and they were all negative. All 50,000 of them were saying, like, don't do this. This is going to be a totalitarian nightmare. Don't do this. And, of course, the, the result of the meeting was that they're all very happy with the, with the way things are going and they're going to push it forward. And, yeah, we're going to see a seven bank digital currency here in the next few years. And this is something that it scares me. It scares a lot of Bitcoiners, I think. Most people who are aware prepare for it and not just by learning how to do self-custody but also by learning how to provide for your own food and to not be dependent upon energy from from the government because that's what we're seeing right now there is, we see government it sounds a little bit conspiratorial but we see government attacking food chains food supply we see them attacking the energy supply you have to imagine that the Germany especially, they are like 80 or even 90% dependent on Russian gas. And they're closing the pipeline that supplies the gas to Germany. It's closed. It doesn't operate anymore. And the interesting thing about gas, if you, like most of the houses here in the Netherlands as well, and also Germany, they're heated by gas and most people do their cooking on gas. So if you want to take a hot shower, if you want to turn up the heat, that's gas-based. Well, what happens if the pressure leaves those gas pipe systems, you can't just turn it on again. There has to, a mechanic has to come to your house, build up the pressure, make sure the gas is flowing, and then leaves again. If you have what is it, 12 million households, it takes a long time for these couple of hundred mechanics to restart all the gas pipelines. I think they're going to destroy these, these gas supplies, and it's not going to be restarted again because they just can't. And this is scary because winters get cold there and people are not preparing or not aware of what's going on. It's insane. We should, and oh, of course, sorry, uh, so we have the attack on food supply, we have the attack on energy supply, and we have an uh, attack on the financial system. And yeah, like most podcasts already come to the same conclusion, this is all about a collapsing monetary system. And if you look at it from a, a, from a from helicopter view, what we're really seeing is the failure of the European project. And in the continent of Europe, it's been there for ages and it will probably be there for a while. But the EU, like the bureaucratic system where they want to unite Europe, this is failing. And I think that uh, uh, what we're seeing right now is a failure of the euro. The inflation here, we see the dollar being stronger against the euro, and this is going fast. Like a month or two ago, one dollar was one euro 20. Right now, they're on par with each other. 
So one dollar is one euro. I can even remember when we had that for the last time, but it has to be the early 2000s where the euro was worth so little. And now we're seeing that again, the dollar is getting stronger, the euro is getting crushed. Inflation is rising. That the Southern European countries cannot afford the debt. They cannot maintain the debt that they have. The Northern European countries don't want to pay for the debt in the South. The money printer has to go where to buy up all the Southern debt and to restructure all the debt that they have. And the Northern European countries looking at that, seeing their money being debased and uh, becoming more and more angry. And this is fascinating because this is why you will see the uprising, like the farmer uprising, primarily in the North, like Germany and the Netherlands, because those are the countries that have the most to lose. It's this European, the, the, the politicians have said it before, like they, their goal is to create like a single mindset within Europe. And there is so much, there's such a wealth gap between the North and the South that, and of course, politicians can never create wealth. They can take it away. So what is their solution? We take away the wealth of the North, give it to the South see if it works and it doesn't work because the south is mostly corrupt and this is like the like in greece there's people don't pay a lot of taxes there's a lot of black money they're just not interested in and it's part of the way society works there so you can send all this money to the south but it won't change the way they, they operate and in in the north we see tremendous amounts of money, like hundreds of billions of euros going to the EU project. And there's nothing to show for, no, there's nothing coming back. So yeah, I think people are sick of it. And yeah, that's uh, in the Northern European countries first. And that's, uh, I think that adds to the, to the Bitcoin community here because Bitcoiners have been pointing to this and saying this for a long time, like the Euro is going to fail. It doesn't work. Europe is not one country. It's not like the United States where every citizen feels like he's an, or she's an American, uh, that doesn't, that's, doesn't exist here. I feel Dutch. I might feel like a, I don't know, say I'm European or a world citizen or whatever, but not a Dutch. And then we're light years away from this coming together and politicians trying to micromanage this, these feelings that, that, that are living with the population. It's the weirdest thing. That's why we see a sort of forced mass migration here in the idea to take away a little bit of the local, which are the local mindset or the local culture, um, and create something else. And they hope that it will be some sort of European culture that exists. And that's not what's going on. It's not how it works. It's just a lot of angry people. That's what we see. So, yeah, that's uh, the Bitcoiners are in the middle of all that, looking at it and going, okay, this is what we've been preparing for. And I think that's a it's a different mindset from what we've seen. Uh, what, what I see in other countries with Bitcoiners, um, we are moving from theory to practice in the Netherlands. I think we'll have, in Europe, we'll have a central bank digital currency within the next four years. It's going to be every bit of totalitarian dystopian that everybody, uh, that's when we need. And the Bitcoiners, I know they've been orange filling farmers, they've been orange filling business owners, they've been orange filling people who own supermarkets so that they can actually do their groceries with Bitcoin. And this, this works in the Netherlands. This is successful. If you guys come over here for the Amsterdam conference, you'll notice there's a lot of businesses where you can pay with Bitcoin. And this is, uh, it's fascinating. It's not a gimmick anymore. I think we're, yeah, we're moving to a practical solution for something that's coming. I've heard of how, how well orange-filled merchants are and stuff like that. And it seems as though the Dutch Bitcoin community has really accelerated 
Bitcoin adoption on a voluntary basis a lot further than we've seen in other places. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? It's very hard for me to compare to other places. What I think most of the media is coming from from English-speaking territories, and I think they're very much aligned. So I can imagine that the Bitcoin scene in the UK is similar to the Bitcoin scene in the US, listening to the same podcasts, being influenced by the same financial influencer. Everybody's listening to to, to the same message, basically. Um, I think in that sense, the Netherlands just tags along. That's the same. I wonder if it's any different in other places, but what I'm seeing here right now is that people have a hard time, and especially in the Netherlands, people have a hard time stepping outside of the paradox, the current paradox, and meeting reality, like seeing what's actually going on, seeing a government that's out of control, and accepting that. And most of them are stuck into the paradigm where they believe in, I don't know, the government is always there to take care of you, something that uh, European governments tend to be communicating very strongly. And it's just not true, but it might have been true in the 70s, and it's just stuck. It's how especially left-leaning people look at government. They trust the government very much. In Germany, this is even worse. The trust in the government is so big that uh, I cannot see... They would have to take away specific German cultural things for people to wake up. And I think we're seeing that right now because I do see people here stepping outside of the paradigm, realizing that the government is not an institution that you can blindly trust and trying to think about solutions. But Bitcoin is, it's very, to understand Bitcoin, it takes, it, it takes years. Nobody really understands Bitcoin because it keeps changing and it is something, it means something else to everyone. So people need to figure out what it is and how it can work for them. And there's not that many use cases. I love what's been going on in El Salvador. That's use case. People send money home to El Salvador, pay 25% interest on the payment to a Western union or, or whatever company that's in between them. And, and then you can just take that. Oh, that's 25% profit. Awesome. Let's do it. But the Dutch, they're not like that. We have a banking system that's mostly functioning. We can do instant payments from one bank to another bank. Really no use for Bitcoin in that as a payment tool because the payment options that the Dutch have are, uh, uh, yeah, they work well. The thing is, you if you talk about confiscation of lands of farmers, when the government is openly talking about these confiscations, people start to wake up and they go, okay, this might be a use case. And I wonder if the same thing is going on in Germany, for instance, uh, where we see in France, especially, we've been seeing uprisings for years. The yellow vests were going on at least two years before profits. The French, I'm still amazed by how much they take from Macron. But there too, you have this issue with government overreaching, talking about confiscation or actively displacing people for environmental reasons. And all these people, they will discover Bitcoin. That's the reason why I'm optimistic about the future is because of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a very strong tool to fight totalitarian government, but people want to see it. We need a use case. And that's, that's a problem because it needs to get worse before people realize that they need Bitcoin. And it's not going to come from the speculators that buy Bitcoin at the top, sell it again, watch the bottom and then complain. It's not going to be from the, yeah, the, the people who want to protect their wealth. I think the disintegration of the stock to flow model killed that. 
And I'm excited for the new narrative where Bitcoin is a tool against confiscation. But yeah, we're going to need to have some use cases to actually, uh, for people to open their eyes and start to learn. And this needs to happen first. We got about 15 more minutes scheduled on the call. So if there's anyone who wants to jump up, ask for some questions, add to the conversation, please request and I'll, I'll bet. But Boris, you paint a pretty bleak picture, but at the same time, obviously Bitcoiners, individuals are trying to stay ahead of the pack. From what I've seen, you're right. A lot of people really trust in the government agenda. A lot of people really trust in the narratives, the models, etc. still. And I think you're right that we need more pain to shake people out of it. But we are feeling a decent amount of pain here. And, and you did mention like your meetup is growing. Like how long do you think it's going to take before coin and sovereignty turns into a movement in Europe? Yeah. How long is that going to take? <laughs> Slowly then suddenly, I have no idea. I hope that it'll be fast, but I'm skeptical of the learning curve that Bitcoin presents to people. And I think there are a lot of local resources for people to learn. But it is not as easy as it is, for instance, if, if, if you're in the U.S. or if you speak English, there is so much content. There's so much to learn. And in Dutch, there's a lot less. It's hard to find your resources. Even though a lot of them speak English and listen to the English language podcasts, there is not the same amount. We don't have that. We don't have the same amount of influencers, for instance. We don't have that. Uh, all our monetary influences are very traditional stock market people. It's rare to find someone in traditional finance who, who is positive about Bitcoin or actually understands Bitcoin. I think plan B was a, was an exception when it comes to that, or is an exception when it comes to that. Yeah. How long will it take? I don't know. The thing is it could go very quickly. If you need Bitcoin, yeah, you're gonna, the thing is, I think there are a lot of Bitcoin in the Netherlands. There's a lot of Bitcoiners in the Netherlands and once they're once the people around these Bitcoins need Bitcoin to do their groceries or to do whatever form of transaction, there's Bitcoins in the surrounding that teach them how to work and maybe actually sell them some Bitcoins. And this is, so I think in, in theory, a lot of people have access to Bitcoin indirectly, but because the right amount of pain hasn't happened yet, people haven't figured it out yet. And this will come, but yeah, the ECB is saying that they want to celebrate digital currency within the next four years, they probably rolled it out slowly, uh, presented as something that's actually, I don't know, it's good for people, they get some free money, whatever. And then, yeah, we'll see the first confiscations or we'll see people not able to spend money because their carbon credits uh, have run out, stuff like that. And then it will go really fast. Well, once they show that, the conspiracy theorists will be proven right again. And they already have been a long time, if you look at the whole corona narrative and everything that's going on. And in the Netherlands, we have a couple of these cases. Apart from corona, there's other stuff going on politically here. For instance, children have been taken away. Uh, about 1,300 children have been taken away from their parents because these parents came into financial problems. This is another, this is a, 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 this actually led to the downfall of the current government and they got reelected again, which is very strange, was, but had to, to do with the fear of, of COVID. Uh, but again, imagine if in, in the US, 1,300 kids would be taken away from their parents because they had financial problems. That would have been, yeah, that, that's going to be a problem. And those kind of issues are, are playing out right now in the Netherlands and people are actually starting to realize that the government is not 
necessarily there for them. And another thing, if you hear about the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, in the Netherlands, this is very close to home. Switzerland is not far away, but our royal family is very connected to the World Economic Forum. They're openly involved with, with the World Economic Forum. Our prime minister, when he goes to the to parliament and he walks like the last 50 meters from his car to the entrance of the building, he's carrying uh, a suitcase which looks like something you get handed out at, at the Davos conference or something. Uh, but can you imagine your, can you imagine Biden walking into the White House with, with a World Economic Forum suitcase? That would be pretty ridiculous. That's actually what's going on here. It's so obvious. It's so visible. So I think people are people starting to notice. People starting to notice the narrative. Things are changing. It could take a long time. And I think like most Bitcoiners, I'm amazed by how fast it goes and how slow it goes at the same time. People really need to be orange filled like three times before they actually step into Bitcoin learn about it themselves. Yeah, that just takes a long time. It might, in some cases, take years, especially if you trust the government, if you trust the current system. Yeah, it's very hard to to change that paradigm. Very helpful insight and info there. We have one person on stage at 5.btc. Welcome to the conversation. And just an FYI, we have less than 10 minutes left. So if you want to come up, request now, because we, these are the final words here. MI5, what's up? Going once, <laughs> going twice, MI5 ending out of the combo. Well, that's that. Boris, any last words before we wrap this up? IQ, do you have uh, do you have any questions to close it out before the last words? No, let Boris give the last words. I appreciate all the context and everything you shared. Oh, cool. Good to hear that. Yeah, I'm psyched for uh, Bitcoin Amsterdam. Most Bitcoins I know already uh, stop. We have these Telegram groups. People already start sending each other messages. Like, oh yeah, I just got my tickets in. I just got my tickets. What are you going to do on this night? What are you going to do on that night? Uh, we're uh, working on doing a Bitcoin meetup during the Bitcoin conference as a satellite event. I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to uh, yeah meeting a lot of very famous Bitcoiners in person. Yeah, I'm always sites when Amsterdam is in the picture. Yeah, two things are coming together. I mean, the city I was born in and my I love it. It's just, it's going to be a good forward to see you guys. Any, any local recommendations to folks traveling to Amsterdam and the Netherlands for the first time? Yeah, to be honest, just Amsterdam is a, uh, actually, I, it's not the place it used to be 20 years ago when it was really dangerous. So actually, I think that U.S. government uh, actively promoted not going to Amsterdam because it was so dangerous. That's not the case anymore, but don't be a typical tourist. Amsterdam is not a place where they want to be a tourist. So try to blend in a little bit, just chill, and you'll love the city. And I think what's great, there's a, a story about Tour de Maester. It's a paper he read, and it was about, it's called the Bitcoin Reformation. It came out a couple of years ago. And he was talking about how, for instance, in the Netherlands, the golden age came from the 18-year war with the Spanish. So it's a perfect example about bad times creating strong people and strong people creating good times. So we had this golden age and Amsterdam, the city of Amsterdam was built in this golden age. So if you walk through the city center, if you walk on the canals, you look at the buildings, most of these buildings are from the golden age. They're still there. And for all these generations that were maintained, and the city is, you're walking through the museum and this the interesting background to this is that this came from a very libertarian idea 
And then and the, the laws we had were later used as a blueprint for the American constitution. And all this stuff started here in the Netherlands. And yeah, well, well, if you come here, if you walk around to the canals, you can see that you can go to the first central bank, you can go to the VOC company headquarters. It's all still there. It's, it's, it's beautiful in the So we have a lovely trip. Oh, awesome. We got a last minute ad. Root, welcome to the stage. What's it, what would you add to the conversation? Thank you so much, CK, for inviting me up. But no, I think it was a great conversation. Boris always has a lot to say about about these things. I've been a fan of his podcast. I've actually met him in real life, but he doesn't know. It's, but uh, yeah, no, I think it was a great conversation. I think, uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the, uh, to the Bitcoin Magazine event in Amsterdam in October. And uh, yeah, I think uh, as Boris said, there's a lot of history in Amsterdam. The, for example, the Amsterdam Exchange Bank is there. It's uh, worth a visit as a Bitcoiner. So there's a lot of things. Also, Antwerp is not uh, uh, too far away. There's also uh, some history there. If you've read the book, Layered Money, you will see all these nice things about the history. So there's, uh, there's cool stuff in Europe, obviously. All right, y'all. Well, Boris, thank you so much for the time. Looking forward to meeting you in person in Amsterdam. Everyone here can too attend the Bitcoin Amsterdam, October 12th to the 14th. You can buy tickets. You can see above Pierre Richard was announced and we're announcing speakers over the next coming days. So less than a hundred days until the event. See everyone in Amsterdam and uh, cheers. All right. Thanks guys. Thanks a lot. So see you in Amsterdam.